for the victory of Israel over her enemies. Can I hear an amen? I want us to keep standing because I want us to pray for Israel today. How many know they need the prayer of victory over their nation? I want everybody to understand this. We don't believe that right now Israel is the kingdom of God as it's prophesied in the Bible, but we do believe that the land belongs to them because that's prophesied in the Bible. Can I get a little more in the monitors, please? Thank you. So we're not saying right now this is what we would consider the millennial kingdom. We're not saying that. In other words, they can make mistakes. They can do things that are wrong, and I'm not saying everything they do now is right. But what I can say is that right now, this is the situation that they are living in. That little yellow sliver is Israel, and all that is red are Islamic states and countries where they are hated and much of this land has sworn to wipe them off of the map. And not only that, but in those countries, Christians and Jews do not have the rights that the Jews are allowing the Muslims to even have in Israel in that little sliver. And so when you get hip to the game and you understand what's going on, you'll begin to see that what the Muslims are doing are using the Palestinian people to cause conflict so that the world will hate the Jews once again and side with them so that they can go over there and do what they want with them. And so take, for example, the situation we're having right now, even as we're reading the book of Revelation, even if you go to the New York Times, as I was reading today, they will say, before we get into rockets flying over into the people's land, uh, to the, the homes and the land of the, the Israeli people from the Muslims. Before we get into that, let us try to make you feel sorry for the Palestinians. And that's what's hilarious about it. It's like, hold on, before we talk about the rockets, you can literally go to the New York Times uh, article right now, and it says, before we talk about the rockets, let's just back up and understand this. And so t- this conflict right now stems from the mosque wanting to have their loudspeakers on while there was a government um, rally for the Memorial Day. And so they didn't want to turn off their speakers. The Israelis go over there, shut off the speakers. Now, however you believe in free speech or however you want to judge what the Israelis did, that's, that's between you and God and how we look at those things. But remember, in Saudi Arabia, that big country right there, the Jews cannot have their speakers on at any time preaching Judaism at any time. Are you listening? Christians cannot have loudspeakers on at any time preaching Christianity. But they want to frame it. This was a violation of their rights, and maybe so. That can be worked out in a court of law as what we would believe. But what do they then do? They then start protesting. They start coming against the police. And then Hamas, this terrorist group that's based out of there, starts firing rockets. Well, don't start no stuff. Won't be no stuff. When you start firing rockets, whatever you just said before, that doesn't matter now, does it? Okay, well, there was a dispute over freedom of speech. Or maybe they shouldn't have walked into the, the the Israeli police shouldn't have walked into the mosque because they were considered unclean or whatever. Okay, so so that, that was one dispute. But once the rockets flew, I don't feel sorry for you now. And that's, come on somebody, and that's what I was saying during our time of riots here in, the, in, in Chicago, because a lot of people were saying during that time, well, you know, y'all don't listen to when we do peaceful protests, now you're going to listen to our rights. And I'm like, hold on, stop for a second. So this is not a protest now. Well, if it's not a protest, it's an act of violence, an act of war. 
You are not protected now to do that anymore. So you should not be upset if you get shot and killed doing that because you can't run back to the argument of, well, we were just protesting. No, I I thought you just told us the peaceful protest doesn't work. So you changed, and that's what they did. They changed from protesting to firing rockets. Well, what do you think is going to happen when you fire rockets at somebody? You're going to have some rockets fired back at you, and that's where they're at right now. And so I'm just wanting you to see that picture because in the Bible, in Psalm 122, verse 6, it says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It says, May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. And it's 100% the Muslims' fault to why there is not peace in that city right now. 100%. It is 100%. I'm not saying everything Israelis do is right, but if Muslims wanted to be fair to the Jews, because let me just say this before we pray for the the peace of Israel, if they wanted to be fair, they'll tell you right now, this is not a secular battle. This is not really over freedom of speech, over, uh, you know, what a constitution should or shouldn't be in Gaza or in Jerusalem. No, it is a spiritual battle between their two books. I mean, let's just be honest. Can I hear an amen if you believe that? Uh, You talk to a Muslim and say, why do you want that land? It has zero to do with some constitution that man writes. They want that land because they believe all of this land belongs to Muslims and also all of the land that you're on right now. And because this once used to belong to Muslims, you don't get that back. Because what they conquer, they get to keep. And so by their rules, they get that back. But then hold on, we say to them the same thing. Well, hold on, wasn't Egypt Christian? Why don't we get that back? Wasn't Libya Christian? Wasn't Turkey Christian? Wasn't Syria Christian? Wasn't Iraq Christian? All of this was Christian before Islam. No, but they don't want to talk to you about that. So but anyways, going back to the scriptures, we point them right back to the book and say, devil, you are a liar, liar, pants on fire. That lamb belongs to Israel. So if we're just arguing based on where the heart of the matter really is, the heart of the matter really is is against our religious beliefs of who that lamb belongs to. They want to say it belongs to them because they conquered it. They get to keep it. And we say, no, no, you don't get to do that. After the Jews were basically almost exterminated during World War II, we gave them back through the Allied forces, gave them back their land and a safe haven. And like I said, since then, the Muslim people have been using the Palestinians as a pawn to keep trying to afflict Israel so that the world at large will turn their backs on them. And I thank God today that America as a whole has not turned their back on Israel, but we do have presidents, primarily Democrat presidents, that try to. And so that's why a lot of you who were upset with Trump didn't understand that Trump was the most pro-Israeli president we've had in our lifetime. And just that alone would be enough to want to support a conservative or a Republican, not, not to mention all the other things uh, that, that he did in a Christian way, supporting uh, the Supreme Court justices and putting you know, the capital of, uh, of the embassy in Jerusalem. But we need to pray for Israel. Can we pray for Israel? Father, we ask you to pray for Israel. Uh, Lord, we ask you to bless Israel, rather, while we pray for them right now. Lord, we ask for peace to come to their borders and to their walls. And for this to end, Father God, with Muslims repenting of their sins against your people and that they will become born again, not by force, O Lord, but by the truth of the Scripture, so that, Lord, they may know and love you and see you and live for you, and that, Lord, there may be peace in the Middle East, and that, Lord, we would even be so bold to ask that this whole 1040 window, that this Islamic land will become Christian and that they'll join us in the rapture.
and that the Antichrist will not have as large of an army as could possibly be there even now. You only need, God, according to your scriptures, like a few hundred million, but there's more than a billion there right now, O oh Lord. So we pray, save them, God. Bring them to the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. Dreams and visions. And Lord, we ask that we can continue to share this message to our friends and family, and especially this culture who continually takes the side of Islam. God, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on them. They take the side of Islam against your people. And we pray for this peace to come through Jesus Christ. In your name, in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus today. We're standing with Israel. You may be seated. Thank you for coming. Just leave that picture up. But isn't it something, while we're talking about the end times, we're literally living out the end times. Here it is. Look at your neighbor and go, whoop, there it is. There it is. That's what we're talking about. It's right there. Now, everybody get this. You could not have done this 100 years ago. Because sometimes people say to us as Christians, they go, oh, you Christians, you keep saying Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. But they said that in the 1400s. He never came back. He, you know, Christians have been saying that in the 1500s. He never came back. 1700s, 1800s. But how many know there's a big difference between all of that time and 1946 and 1948? How many know there was a difference there in the timeline? You all don't know? See, you know what changed? Listen to me, people. What changed is that Israel became a nation. In the 1400s, Israel was not a nation. So how are you going to work out the book of Revelation? As we get in today, the two uh, witnesses have to be there in Jerusalem preaching to God's people and getting them back on track. And then the Antichrist has to be able to come to an established temple in that land and defile it. Well, how do you have Israeli people in Jerusalem if there's not a nation there, if it's occupied by their enemies? How do you have uh, the ability to have a temple unless they have the ability to build a temple? They have to be a nation. And so when you see that since the 1940s, Israel has become a nation, the true clock of the end times has now started to count down. So I don't want you to think to yourself, well, we may be off in this by another thousand years or, you know, that amount of period because other people have been off by a thousand years. No, we can't make that. We, that mistake cannot be made in our lifetime now. Because this has never been in someone's generation, a generation that has been able to see Israel become a nation. So anyone that was alive around that time or was born around that time and is still alive today is a living witness of God keeping his word to Israel. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So let's go to our notes and to the sermon today. We're going to go to Acts, excuse me, Revelation chapter 8 verse 6. And as we get ready there, I want to review and kind of give you where we're at. So let's start with this. Let's start with the, the main chart. How many like this chart right here? Is this helping you guys out? Amen. How many, are, how many still believe in Jesus even though he may not be white Jesus? All right, don't, don't get upset. I didn't make the chart. But how many still believe in Jesus though? Amen. But he, he, he's probably not white. Let's just all settle that today. You know, the, the, the black guy and the white guy were arguing over what color he is, and then they died in a car accident. They went up to heaven, and what did Jesus say to them? Que paso. He's not white. He's not black. He's Latino. That's what he turned out to be. He's the gente. That's, that's a good one. You guys laughed at a pastor joke. I should tell them more. A little clap for pastor jokes. Look at that. I don't make these up. They normally don't go well with me, so I stopped trying them. Uh, 
You guys encourage me now to try them again. I might get in trouble with that. So what we've already talked about is the, the seven seals, and the seventh seal opens up to the seven trumpets, and the seven trumpet then gives us the interlude, which then brings us to the bowls of wrath. We're considering this the seven years of tribulation, and so the seven years of tribulation are divided into, if we can make that smaller, my brother, thank you, is divided into two periods of three and a half years. We're actually going to see that that reason why we divided into three and a half years. And if you remember from, from last week, I tried to get into the 70 weeks of Daniel and I messed the whole thing up because it's really uh, something you got to uh, understand how to multiply the seven times the seven. So today I got a chart just for that. But underneath this, uh, these judgments of the seals and the trumpets, there's been things that have been happening that haven't been announced yet in the book of Revelation. So for example, the Antichrist is is here during the time of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And some even believe that the main deception of the first horseman, which brings deception upon the earth, is the Antichrist. So I, I, I'm not sure if that argument could be made from the four horsemen, but I'll show you for sure how I know he has to appear around that time of the four horsemen. That's going to be announced, uh, Lord willing, next week. Today we're going to learn about the two witnesses, and then we're going to try to put them in that timeline. And we're going to hear the, uh, the 1,260 days, 1260 days. We've already read about the locusts and how they're there, and then we're going to learn about the beast and his kingdom, which is the Antichrist kingdom, but we're going to learn about that imagery and then be given the last, uh, the last seven-fold judgment, which are the seven bowls, because it's three sevens. It's seven seals of judgment, seven trumpets of judgment, and seven bowls of judgment, and then after that, God does all of these things to establish what will then become his millennial millennial reign as he comes now to rule and reign through the church. And then after that is the great white throne judgment and what we now call the new heavens and new earth where we will dwell for eternity with Christ, which is different than the millennial reign. Some Christians don't believe that this happens. They think we go directly to a heaven-like state. But there's actually a thousand years where we rule and reign on the earth as it is now, like the same earth, the same things are here, but now we're ruling and reigning over Christ. But at his final judgment, the whole heavens and the earth, and we're talking about heavens, uh, could possibly even mean God's dwelling place because the Bible says that he had to bring his blood up there to cleanse it, and that goes back to, uh, you know, Satan's first sin was done in heaven, and so the blood actually cleansed that uh, dwelling place, the heavenly realm where those battles have been happening, and then our atmosphere, the heavens, and so we believe that the whole thing is redone, and, and go back to Genesis chapter 1 when you think about the heavens, it says, God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. Most people don't understand that the heavens, even where God dwells, was not created until that time. So before that, all there was was God, not even heaven. Does everybody get that? That's something deep to think about. And so then when we go into the eternal age, the age without end, as the Bible says, forever and ever, it is a new heaven, singular, and a new earth. So whatever those three realms have been, where God has been, where the angels can go back and forth, and then where we see the atmosphere is now compressed into one heaven. So the heavens are made into one heaven, a new earth, and then from there we serve the Lord, and uh, the wicked are in the lake of fire forever. And so death and hell are actually thrown into there, and then that's their final place. Thank you, my brother. If we could come out of that. Now I want to show you again how people have viewed the bowls, the trumpets, or excuse me, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. There's different ways to do that.
that whether you believe in a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. And we are a pre-tribulation church. That means we believe all the things we have talked about when it comes to judgment, we're already in heaven. And how many are happy for that? Now, I'm not saying we should believe it just because it's the most happiest, nicest thing to believe. But I am thankful that the thing that is the nicest and happiest thing is the most right thing. Can I hear an amen? Like, it would be hard here to make this a sermon series where I have to convince you to go through the seven years, but I think God would still be faithful. I still believe God would be faithful to us through the seven years. I know there's some post-trippers here. I'm not going to make them feel awkward today. God's going to be with you folks, okay? We're going to be up in heaven. As if we have a choice. I know we really don't. Uh, we'll be wherever God wants us to be. Okay, so here's a way to look at it. Some people see it, like myself, that the seven seals come, then at the seventh seal starts the uh, first of the seven trumpets. Then at the seventh trumpet starts the seven bowls. That's how I see it. Then there are others, as we've talked about before, who see it more in a cyclical way. And I've kind of painted their uh, belief a little bit more simplistic than how it can really be. So I want to do them a favor here by showing how they'll look at it. Because if you remember, I've showed you that if they believe that the, the bowl, excuse me, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are cyclical, they run into problems. Because even if you just start with the first seal, the first seal is, is deception. The first trumpet is grass being burned up. It doesn't even match, right? And then the first bowl here is sores afflicting people. So it doesn't match up. And I've said that's the reason why I don't believe they're cyclical. I believe they go linear. They don't repeat or have uh, overlap. Well, now to give them a little bit more credit, here's how some of them look at it. So between the third and the fourth uh, seal comes the first trumpet. That's how they start to play with it because they start to try to fit it all in there. And then it all ends with the last seven. So the seventh seal is the same as the seventh trumpet that time and the seventh bowl. I can kind of see that. That kind of makes a little bit of sense. But I still don't agree with it because it doesn't, doesn't uh, play out that way when we get into the timeline like we will now with uh, the days. We're actually now given days when we get into the witnesses, and I'll show you how I don't think that plays out. And then the other one is kind of like staggered, where by the time you get to the sixth seal, you get the first trumpet, and then it goes all the way to the seventh. But right around the sixth trumpet, you get to the first bowl. And honestly, I've never heard even anybody even preach that. I don't even know how they come up with it being staggered like that. Maybe the only thing I could think of is because some of those things... Uh, seem similar. So if you go to the sixth seal, the sixth seal is martyrdom, and then they believe that now the trumpet starts, and so maybe because there's been martyrdom upon the earth, now God is going to start judging the earth. Maybe that's how they pull it out, and then by the time you get to the bowls there around the sixth trumpet, you get to the first bowl, and the sixth trumpet here is the 200 million man army, and now they think God starts afflicting the army. Maybe they see some similarity in that. I don't see it there. I just stick with the way that it's written out, and I'm going to show you that I believe that goes with the timeline. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Whether you agree with it or not, you can at least agree that I'm doing my best, right? That's what you're saying amen to. I'm not trying to trick you. You don't have to change your opinion just because I'm forced you to say amen. Like, what am I saying amen to? Just, just say amen. Amen. Just say amen to like, I'm doing my best up here trying to be consistent, okay? Now, we're going to get into the heavy math of Daniel's 69 weeks. So there's charts within charts and charts, aren't there? The charts never stop. So we started just with this simple chart. We thought that was it. No, that wasn't it. Then we had to 
break down all the, seven, the sevenfold judgments there and then all the different ways you can break that down. Now we're into Daniel 70 weeks. And I know for some of you, uh, you may have came from churches that, that it was easier for you to hear a pastor act like he knew everything and just put it all out there. But is anybody here grateful that someone like myself is trying to at least show you there's different understandings of this? Okay, thank you. The other half of you, I know you want me dogmatic, casting the rest of them all to hell because they're wrong, but we got so many other things to fight about than to fight about this. So I've been trying to work through this series, giving you opportunities to come on the train of the pre-rapture or to get off the train, to come on to the train of the, the, you know, the horizontal linear view of the judgment or to get off the train and believe that they're cyclical or to believe in different things. I'm trying to give you that space, but at the same time showing you what I'm convinced of. Okay, so now in review, because it's a part two sermon, we divided up the seven trumpets into two parts and today we'll conclude it. Just a review of last week. The first trumpet is the hail and fire mixed with blood. The second trumpet was the huge mountain coming down, being thrown into the sea and turning a third of it into blood and killing a third of the creatures. The third sounding trumpet was that great star that fell from earth and then it, uh, it defiled or made impure the rivers and the springs of water, and so a third of them were ruined. The fourth trumpet sounded, and we heard about stars, a third of the stars, a third of the moon, and a third of the sun went dark. And I explained that to you how that could happen. Everybody remember how I did that? Gave you a little bit of science there, and I even went back and checked my science, and I'm like, hey, that was pretty good from off the top because I wasn't quite ready to get into that, but I think I led you in a good direction there. Then we have the in the, in the middle there, not necessarily at the middle, but after the fourth, somewhat close to the middle, we get an angel that says the last three trumpets are the last are going to be three woes. So the, the last three of the trumpets, which is the first woe, is the fifth angel. And then we see that the star falls and opens up the abyss, and out of the abyss comes the locust army. So let's see how many of you thought about this this week. I'm going to give you two options. Do you believe the locust army is a demon army or a literal person army? Okay, so how many believe that the locust army is a demonic army? Raise your hands. Okay. How many believe it's a literal army? Raise your hands. Okay. How many of you don't like to raise your hands in church? Okay. There you go. Gotcha. All right. So the majority who did vote voted that you think it's a demon army. And I would agree with you because they're called locusts, but they don't look anything like locusts. Now, when you go to the next one, the sixth angel bringing the sixth trumpet, which is the second woe, we see that the angels are released from the Euphrates and they gather a 200 million person army. And this is the reason why I don't believe this army can, can be compared to the, the, to the army of Armageddon because here this army kills a third of mankind. So notice it right here. There's a 200 million man army and they kill a third of mankind. At the battle of Armageddon, and at the end, you see where all of these people here are trying to say, because this is the sixth uh, trumpet, where they're all trying to say that the sixth trumpet is right by the sixth bowl in the sixth, um, in the sixth uh Sixth trumpet, rather, is the same as the sixth seal and the sixth bowl. I can't go there with them on that because here at the trumpet, it's not towards the end. It's got to be towards the beginning because the army kills a third of the people. Who are they killing at the end? What is the point of killing all those people at the end of the seven-year tribulation? What, what, what would be the point of that? They've already conquered the earth because if you go through the book of Revelation, the beast owns the earth. 
How is he killing a third of mankind? Is he just doing it just because he wants to, just to do it? It wouldn't make any sense. It would make sense that if he was at the beginning bringing in his power, putting down all revolutions in any countries that stayed against him, because a lot of times people ask us, well, what happens to America in the end times? That's probably part of the third of the earth that dies. Does everybody get it? Because, I mean, America could be dumb enough at some point, because we can elect, you know, and allow uh, Biden to steal the election. We might be dumb enough to do something with the Antichrist. But at some point, how many know, even if you're not saved, and, you know, these kind of people are left behind, how many know they're not going to be worshiping the Antichrist? That's not going to come easy to most Americans at the beginning. So they're going to want to fight. I think that's, that's what happens. The Antichrist, with his 200 million man army, kills a third of the earth. He's killing people in America. He's killing people in other countries that don't want to serve them. Even countries that uh, have their own thing, like let's say uh, in, in North Korea, he's like, I already got people worshiping me. We're not going to worship you. So he's got to take out a part of their population. Are you guys tracking with me on that? It just doesn't make sense that at the time of the battle of Armageddon, this army that's about ready to fight God has killed 200 million of their own people. Because it doesn't speak about that in that sense. It speaks about this building up, and then there's peace. Because remember, when Jesus, Jesus said in Matthew, when everybody is saying, peace, peace, that's when he comes. And so that's why towards the ends of the bowls of wrath, the people are like, man, God keeps ruining our party. We're finally at peace. We all got our marks. We get to do whatever we want. And God keeps sending down judgments. Or what they will believe at that time is probably another power, another alien race, or whatever they're thinking those angels are at that time because I think they'll be convinced that they're serving aliens and the beast is some type of an alien. But anyways, at that time, they're going to get so mad at God, not at each other. So that's just something to think about as we, we got into the sixth seal. Can you help me, my brother, and uh, get me out of there? I keep clicking the wrong thing. And so then today, we're going to see the interlude and then go into the seventh seal, it, uh, seventh trumpet. If you're there, somebody say, I'm there. Okay, let's get here. Let's start in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Thank you, my brother. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1 is going to now start us where we left off from last week after I just did all that review for you guys. Okay. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was clothed or robed in a cloud with the rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. Let me just say this. Thank you, Holy Ghost, for reminding me of this. So I was sitting and talking with Jared. You guys all know Pastor Jared, right? Isn't he pretty awesome? And so we were hanging out doing pastor things during this week. And so guess what? As we were doing pastor things, hanging out, we found out that we disagreed on some of this stuff. And so I was like laughing because I was already telling, uh, you know, sharing with you guys in the church that, you know, there may be other churches that disagree about some of this. I found out that one of our campus pastors disagrees with me about this. So I'm like, man. If you guys already want to hear different opinions, look at Pastor Jared's sermon series. And then I debated with them, and I said, now you know you're wrong. I get back to preaching what I'm preaching, half kid. But he was kind to me. He was like, oh, okay, I didn't see it like that. I'm going to go back and research. And I'm like, yeah, go back and research. Uh, but we're, we're pretty much on the same page. I won't get into our differences, but it was funny because I, I just was talking to you guys about that last week. Like, you know, there's so many different ways to view this. And even in the same church, even amongst the same pastors, there's different ways. And I thank God that we are not forced to take this one way or the other. And this is why I wanted to stop and say it here is because the moment I get into this interlude here into chapter 10 and 11, everybody now has to try to figure out how do we put this into the timeline? 
Because remember, it's pausing right now during the... Uh, after the sixth trumpet, before the, let's see if I can do this without messing it up too bad, before it gets into these seals, we're pausing right here for this interval, and it's like, where do we put all of this? Because this interval is obvious, it's, it's clear to everybody, I don't think there's anybody who disagrees with this, whatever we read now is going to be talking about times previous. So no matter what, you're going to have to pull things out of a later chapter and put it into a beginning part of the story. And then it's like, where do you put the those people in the story. And that's where uh, Jared and I were, you know, we were arguing, not arguing, but more or less debating, man, where do you put these witnesses? Where do you put these uh, horsemen and these different things? Okay, so let's go back to it. Chapter 10, verse 1, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fire, fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. Somebody say seven thunders. Thunder. Boom, boom. Thunder. Does anybody remember that? Yeah, I got some rock and roll guys here. Thunder. That's a, that's a non-Christian song. Don't you, all, don't, you all get, don't you all get defiled by it now. But those who have a past in rock and roll would remember that in the band, ACDC. Lord, pray. We got to pray for them. Lord, save them. So thunder. The thunder spoke. And when the seven thunder spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And now I want to tell you about a new book that I have coming out, what the seven thunders said. I have it on sale today for $24.99. And I'm going to now share with you what the seven thunders said. Isn't that silly when I say it like that? But that's how the world is, the Christian world, in other words. They, they want to now tell you, I got a book. I know what the seven thunders said. And here we see that not everything is meant to be shared. And sometimes God tells us things that aren't meant to be shared. And we got to watch ourselves so we don't get into trouble. This reminds me of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. The Bible says that he went into heavenly realms and he was told things that he couldn't share. And so I love it the way what one preacher said, like if we already have the book of Revelation that tells us, it's sharing with us that locust demons can run the earth, that there's going to be a mark that conquers the whole world, that the sun's going to turn back black. If that's what these men could share, I want to know what they couldn't share. <laughs> Hello, somebody. What they couldn't share would probably scare us to the point we don't know what to do, you know, half kid there, because we already got a lot to go on already. And then what, what we're told we can't know is something might maybe even wilder than, than locust army and, and uh, Antichrist coming back from the dead and a statue that speaks and, and stars falling from the sky. I'm almost like, John, yeah, you keep it sealed up, John. Keep that. Keep what the seven thunders told you, John. Keep it sealed up and don't tell me because I want to sleep at night. I don't want to think about what they told you. Because uh, that's some wild stuff right there. If we, if we can know the rest, but we can't know that. I'm just saying thank you, Jesus, for that. How many are happy that God doesn't tell you everything? Because, you know, we would get freaked out if he told you everything. And, and, and on a serious note, I mean, let's just walk through some of those things. You know, my mother lost her daughter drinking and driving. How many know if she walked with that knowledge every day of her life before that happened, that would just be horrifying? You know what I'm talking about, those of you who have lost loved ones. That would be horrifying while you have a baby in your hands. God says you're going to lose her to 
a drunk driving accident and you're not going to see her at a certain time. I mean, that would just be horrifying. So I think God keeps those things from us so that when we come into those moments, we have just what we need to go through it and we don't live in fear and in anticipation of something that's wrong going to happen. That's why also just a, it's not a big point, but I think it's a point worth, worth, worth bearing and, and to think about is that the Bible always talks about looking for Christ coming, looking for Christ. If we believed in anything other than a pre-tribulation rapture, then the rapture coming to rescue us before this time, if we believed that it happened in the mid or later, we wouldn't be looking for Christ in that sense. We would be having to look for the Antichrist. We would have to be looking for the locust army. Are you tracking with me? How many are thankful that the thing that Jesus kept telling us to look for was him? That's the promise of the church, getting Jesus to rescue them. And I know sometimes people say, well, that's, that's just escapism, Pastor. You just want to escape. You're partly right, I do want to escape. And, but, but that's not why I believe it. I believe it because he told me to look for it. If it was put into our head over and over again, look for the Antichrist. You better be ready for the Antichrist. You better be ready to be slaughtered. A fourth of you are going to die. Then a third of you are going to die. And then a third of you are going to die again. You know, that you, would, you would have a different mindset. Now, I'm not trying to say I wouldn't serve God in that mindset. I would. But that's not the mindset you get from Christ. The, the, the Christian picture is that we're always to be looking up, that he's going to be coming for his church and that he hasn't predestined us for wrath, okay? Can I hear an amen for that? I'm thankful for that. Now, when we get here to, the, to this uh, angel, he has a scroll. He opens up his hand, and he has this in his hand, and he says, uh, excuse me, while he's doing that, the seven thunders speak. Now, going back to the angel, the angel I seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in that, and the sea and all that is in that. And he said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced uh, to his servants, the prophets. Everybody say, the mystery accomplished. Amen. And what is that mystery? Is that Christ is going to gather in the nations and rule over them. Watch this, not just Israel. That was the mystery. What did everybody think in the first century? That Jesus, the Messiah, is just going to rule over Israel. That's why the disciples kept asking him, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When are you going to whoop on the, the Romans? When are you going to make King David's throne, the number one throne, and everybody come to us? And what did Jesus keep telling them? I have sheep that you know not of. It's good that I go away, that the Holy Spirit can come. For what purpose? That you may have power to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? The uttermost part of the world to go and make disciples of the what? The nations, ethnos, all peoples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So this mystery was always given to the, uh, the, the Jews that the Gentiles was going to be included, but they never knew how it was going to happen. When you go back to the prophecies of Jesus being fulfilled at his birth, what do they say? Even at the right beginning of his birth, he will be a light to the Gentiles. How many Gentiles are happy about the mystery being fulfilled? Amen. It's not just Christ for the nation of Israel. Though he keeps his promise to Israel, though Israel is the center of God's kingdom, though the Jews have a special place in his heart for what they have gone through, this mystery includes us, the non-Jewish people. Then I heard the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Once again, people have asked me throughout the book, 
Where's the Holy Spirit? I'm now showing you that voice is the Holy Spirit because it's not the Father, it's not the Son, and it's not an angel. It's just said to be a voice, but it speaks with the same voice of God. I believe that's the Holy Spirit speaking, and I can show you that in Revelation 6, 6, 8, 13, and 10, 4. So the Holy Spirit is that voice that is speaking. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Now, right here, we have what is reminiscent of Ezekiel's prophecy of receiving a scroll. Does anybody remember that? And he eats a scroll. Watch this. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It it will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will taste as sweet as honey. Now, I have the reference to Ezekiel there, but I also have John's reference. What reference do you think I have in John chapter 8? The reference where Jesus said, eat my... Eat my body, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And then the Roman Catholics go, okay, well, we'll do that. We'll become cannibals for you. Let's pray transubstantiation. Let's pray that the communion changes to your, little, your literal body and blood. And Jesus is sitting in your face palm, and he's like, no. He even said it to him at the end. The words I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. It is the words of Jesus that we consume. Isn't that what we do? We do not live by, every, uh, live by bread alone, but every word that what? Proceeds out of the mouth of God. Somebody say The bread of life is the word of God. And there you see it in the prophets. The prophets would eat the scroll, consume the word of God, and then they would speak it forth. And the reason why it probably tastes sweet and then it turns sour is because at the beginning part, you see like, oh, Jesus is coming back. That's amazing. Israel is going to be restored like for Ezekiel. But then what's the sour part? All the judgments that are going to happen before the restoration. You go, oh, man, that's how it's going to be done. That's not going to be easy to watch and go through. And that's where we're honest as Christians. And we say, yes, there are tribulation times upon this earth. There are things we'll be uh, going through, but be of good cheer because Jesus has overcome the world. Amen? So he takes the little scroll from the angel's hands and he eats it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, he said. And when I had eaten, my stomach turned sour. And I explained that to you. I think it's because it's good. It's good to understand what God's going to do. But then when we know how it's going to come about, it does bring us a grieving. Then I was told, you must prophesy. Now notice, he eats the scroll and what is he supposed to do? You must what? Prophesy again about many peoples, nations, language, and kings. So now follow the timeline. Why do I believe that the ending here of the trumpets, because we're, we're, we're finishing off the sixth, getting to the seventh, why do I believe that's not the end of the bowls? Because there's more to be done. As a matter of fact, as I get here now to the two witnesses, I'm going to make an argument that we've simply just now at this point arrived at mid-tribulation three and a half years. And I'll tell you why I get to that point when we go into Daniel's weeks. But this is why he says, hey, it's not over yet. It tasted sweet. I'm coming back. You're ready for it. But there's some sour stuff, and that's going to be the bowls of wrath that are going to come. And so that's why we have to understand how this 69 weeks turn, uh, excuse me, how the 70 weeks turn into the, uh, the three and a half years and how it's going to play out in the history. I believe during this time, and maybe it would be good before, no, let me read the witnesses and then I'll do it because I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Let's read this first. He says, I was given a read 
Like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar with its worshipers. Very similar to what Ezekiel was told to do. So no coincidence, he's eating like Ezekiel and he's measuring like Ezekiel. Ezekiel has another role to play outside of Daniel's role. But Daniel is the most significant one that's quoted by the book of Revelation. But Ezekiel has a role here as well. So he's told to measure, measure the temple. The altar, which is inside uh, of the, t- excuse me, outside of um, the actual holy of holy place, the, the uh, can you put up for me the tabernacle? or No, no put up um, Solomon's temple. How many of you have ever seen a diagram of Solomon's temple? Anybody? A few of us? Okay, let me just do it for you guys because I think this will be good for you. So the temple of God can include the altar area as well, depending on how you're going to look at it. But he's going to now be specific, and he says, I want you to measure the temple and the altar so it's going to be treated as a separate thing. So we'll kind of consider them together like the temple mount or where the temple will be located, and then the worshipers would be in the outer court, okay? But I just want to give you guys an idea of this. Now, remember, Solomon's temple, uh, let's, let's go to this one right here. Remember, Solomon's temple was destroyed and then was rebuilt during the time of Zechariah, okay? And when it was rebuilt, it was rebuilt and then known as Herod's temple later on because Herod re, uh, renovated it. Uh, let, that looks a little bit, let me see, can I actually see the altar here? No, I, wanna, I can't even see the altar right there because they got the, uh, the outer court right there. Let's go to a different rendition. I'm trying to see. Sometimes I give you a peekaboo. There we go. Okay. So as this comes into view, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, Here we have the altar, and then you have what's here, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. In the holy place was the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the menorah, which uh, is right here. And then, yeah, so this would be the holy place. And then the holy of holy place would be where the Ark of the Covenant is, uh, separated by the veil. And so what God was telling him to do was measure where the temple is here, considering the holy place and the holy of holies, and then measure where the altar is, which would be considered a part of the temple grounds, and then measure where the worshipers would be at, which would be out there onto the, um, what, what, what we would call the outer court, which now it's not showing the outer court. The other one did. Let's see if I can show you the outer court right here. So it would be like this. Yes, yeah, so the altar would be in here. The altar would be in here. This would be the outer court where the worshipers would be. And then this would be the temple where the holy, it's divided into two portions, the holy place and then the holy of holies. And what divides the holy place from the holy of holies is the, uh, the curtain. Are you guys tracking with me? So I'm just going to repeat it because I'm Polish and sometimes I confuse myself. So be patient with me right here. Okay, so this is another version of it, but it doesn't help. That's not helpful. Let's go right back to where we were before. Where's that one that actually shows it? There we go. So basically, this is what he's telling him to measure. Perfect. And also there was the, um, the brazen laver out there on the temple grounds. So on the temple grounds would be the brazen laver, the altar, and this is where they would go back and forth and wash. They would sacrifice and wash because well, sacrifice was a bloody mess. You guys understand that, right? I mean, you're sacrificing bulls and animals and lambs, and if you've ever seen a butcher shop, that's reminiscent of what it was. And each one of these have symbols, uh, can stand for symbols that we see in the Bible, and we actually talk about that in our 201 and, and looking at this as a form of prayer and getting into God's presence. 
But what he's wanting him to measure is where the altar is, where the temple is, divided in two parts, and then where the worshipers are, the outer court. So please, my brother, if we could go back to uh, the scriptures. And this is reminiscent of what God gave Ezekiel. Now, why is this important to understand what God gave Ezekiel? Thank you. Is when they rebuilt the temple during that time of Zechariah, Zerubbabel, etc., when you get into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, did that temple fulfill the measurements of Ezekiel's vision of what the new temple would be? It didn't. It didn't fulfill Ezekiel's measurement. So Ezekiel was told to measure a certain way, and when that temple was supposed to be rebuilt, it was supposed to be built that way. Now there gets into a theological discussion. Why didn't Ezra and Nehemiah and those guys build it that way? Maybe they couldn't. Maybe they didn't have enough faith. Who knows why? But it's a sign to us that that temple, since it was destroyed, cannot be Ezekiel's temple. Are you tracking with me? So where is Ezekiel's temple going to be? It's going to be either the one that they build as the third temple that all of the things happen at, the, the, desolation, the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist coming, sacrificing to himself and proclaiming himself God. It's either that or it's the new temple of the millennial reign. I happen to personally personally believe it's the temple that they rebuild because I don't believe that temple gets destroyed as we go into the millennial reign. I believe God protects that temple. So I don't believe there's another destruction of the temple. Now, if you don't believe it's that exact temple, I think we would all agree that by the time Jesus comes on the millennial reign, the renovations to that temple make it Ezekiel's temple. Can I get an amen for that? Okay, so the only reason why I'm stopping there and doing this is because the Bible said we should stop and measure some stuff. Okay, somebody's like, why are we talking about measurements and temples? Well, the Bible said stop and do it. He said, take a measuring rod. Okay, well, Jesus, I don't feel like measuring. I feel like preaching. Jesus, I feel like hearing about a bunch of other stuff. And Jesus is like, no, we're going to talk about measuring rods. And I want you to go back to Ezekiel and understand what I told him to measure. So this is what uh, John is told to measure. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. So when we talk about the court of the temple grounds, there's an inner court and an outer court. And if I call that the outer court, please forgive me. It's supposed to be the inner court where the worship are and the outer court. And he says, do not measure that because it's been given to the Gentiles. So thank you, Holy Spirit, if I said that wrong. Now, why is that important? It's because when Israel is in the land, there is a time when the Gentiles have their property and they start to defile it and they're there and they're messing with their temple grounds. That's how it's going to be when the Antichrist does his, his abomination of desolation. But why are we supposed to take that as serious even now today before that is because they can't build their temple because the Muslims are there on the temple grounds. In other words, the outer court area is a symbol of when Gentiles are out of place and God's people cannot have their freedom. Going back to just what happened in the news today, the very fact that there's a mosque where it's at is a violation of God's drawn out plans for the temple. Come on, somebody go, that's deep. Come on. The reason why there's a problem is because they're not supposed to be there. And what we, what we believe will happen is they will get that land, build this temple, but then they will have that land violated, and then that's what's going to cause that treaty to, to break. So I got to get you through all of this first to help you understand a treaty that's going to be made, why the Gentiles are now on that land, and what goes wrong here, okay? It says, they will trample the city for how many months? Come on, look at verse 2 there. They will trample the city for how many months? 
42 months. So here now is where we get our first timeline. We haven't had it up until this point. We have had no idea of what months and days are supposed to be in the book of Revelation. But now we know that he is being told during this interlude to measure the temple but one part of it he's not supposed to men, uh, measure because there are Gentiles there. And how long are they going to trample it for? Forty-two months. Now watch. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for how many days? 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. If a Jewish year is 360 days, how many months is that then? How many months are 1,260 days if a Jewish year is 360, a lunar calendar, 360 days? How many months is that? 42 months. Because if you divide 1260 by 30-day um, months, because that's how you go 30 times 12, 30, they made their months even, 30 times 12 is 360. You divide it by a 30-day month, 1,260 divided by 30. Can we all do the math together? Let's do it together. Let's check the Bible's math here, okay? Because that would be kind of silly if we had the math wrong. It's like, Jesus, you know math, right? How many believe Jesus knows math? Okay, 1,260 divided by 30 equals 42. Now, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Why is that in quotations? Because that comes from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 3. Why is that significant? Because that's during the rebuilding of the second temple. But that temple is not the actual temple that gets built. That's not Ezekiel's temple. But there are witnesses there that are supposed to be around that temple. So that's another sign to us that there has to be a third temple. That's why it's important we measure these things and understand it. Now, what has happened? If you start from right here and you try to figure it out, you may not get it. But because I've read to the portions we'll get to next week, let me just jump ahead a little bit without turning there. But just track, trust me, we'll get there. What we're going to find out is that they made the Israelites a treaty with the Antichrist, and they got to build their temple, which I believe is Ezekiel's temple. They build it, and they have it for the first 42 months. But then when John is writing here, the covenant, the treaty with the Antichrist gets broken. The Gentiles start taking over the land, and God now sends his two witnesses, and this is the last three and a half years, the last 42 months. We are now looking at the back end. So it's going to start us with the back end and then bring us up to the front thing, to the beginning, okay? So that's why I believe this is so important to understand. Now, if anyone tries to harm these two witnesses, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, who are the two witnesses? Everybody has their best guess. I believe Elijah and Enoch. Why do I believe Elijah and Enoch? Because they haven't died. Okay, so I have their two stories here in Genesis, the story of Enoch, and then I have the story of Elijah. And Enoch, we, just are, heard, we are just told that he was taken to heaven, but Elijah, we see, is taken in a chariot of fire to, directly to heaven. But we have this scripture in Hebrews that says, it is appointed once unto man to die, for every man to die and then face judgment. And so because we believe everyone has to taste death so that they can have the resurrected body, that we believe that this has to happen for them during this time. Now, others think it's Elijah and Moses. 
And why do they think it's Elijah and Moses? Because when Jesus saw, or rather when Jesus uh, transfigured on the mountain of transfiguration, who appeared there? Moses and Elijah. And what would Moses and Elijah stand for? The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. And that's a key point to the old covenant. And then they would also say that this would be Moses and Elijah because look at the signs that they have. Here we see that they have fire that comes out of their mouth. That would be from Elijah being able to call out fire. And Elijah also was able to stop the rain or start the rain, as the Bible says. But then they are able to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with plagues. Who was able to turn water into blood and turn, uh, bring plagues? Moses. So that's why people would say that. Because Moses and Elijah appeared at transfiguration and because these signs and wonders match with Elijah and Moses. But I think it's Elijah and Enoch because of the idea of tasting death. Now somebody might say, well, everybody at the rapture uh, already goes to heaven without tasting death. So how would you get around that? I would simply say that the rapture is the only event that circumvents everybody having to taste death. So I say, well, other than the rapture, everybody has to taste death. But then somebody might go, well, if you're willing to do that for the rapture, well, then make the concession and say not everybody has to taste death because people who get raptured don't have to taste it in that way. And then they go back into their point. And I go, that's a good point, but why would we be told that these two people were taken to heaven? I don't understand that. Just was it to be a, a pre-rapture type understanding? We were just supposed to look at every now and then people getting zapped up into heaven and go, hey, God did it then, he can do it again as a prelude to the rapture? Or are we supposed to read the Bible and go, the ones who avoided death, like that was natural to everybody in their time, because remember, they're not in the rapture generation. We're supposed to look at them as these witnesses that are being held up in heaven, and that's why they're unique characters. Because when you study the life of Enoch, you really don't know anything about him except that fact that he walked with the Lord and then was not because the Lord took him. So once again, I would say, why would I know that? Why would I know that if I wasn't supposed to mark that in my mind, something was special with Enoch? And then later on, something is special with Elijah. It's not a hill to die on, but it's just where we, we, uh, we go there, uh, just because I think it's the easiest to understand. Now, verse 7. Now, when they had finished their testimony, notice this, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Now, this is the problem that we have if we don't read ahead. So you hear now about a character of a beast attacking and killing them, but you don't even know where the beast came from until you get to the next chapters. Now, the Bible, it's not written like maybe we would think it should be written. We would like to know who the beast is before the beast is introduced. But I think the Bible is telling us about what is most important. What is most important here is that we're learning that while the trumpets and while the, um, the seals are coming forth, that God is still being merciful to the earth and that God has not left the earth without a witness and that he is good and faithful even to the point of the battle of Armageddon. I think that is the revelation of Christ, and that's why I believe it's what we would consider chronologically out of order, it's because Christ is the center, not the beast. Now, it doesn't matter where you go on your, chronolo your, your chronology, we all have to understand the beast comes forward before we know who he is. Because it's not till later in the book that we understand the beast comes from these kingdoms and he's joined together with another beast that's a false prophet. But, you know, we all have to agree that it's, it's a bit out of order. So where we put the order in after that, I think it's up to you. I'm sticking with my timeline, and I'll share with that in just a moment. So the beast comes out of the abyss, attacks them, overpowers them. Now, here is something amazing that happens here. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. 
What is that great city they're going to lie in? Which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. And if you remember, when we started the book of Revelation, I said most of the time when the Bible gives us symbols, it will actually interpret them for us. Like the seven, you know, um, the seven fires in his hand, the candlesticks, you know, seven spirits of God. You know, the angels are, are, the ch- are over the churches. He, these things are interpreted. And so here we're told about a city that's figurative of Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord, was crucified. So where was Jesus crucified? Golgotha, which is in what city? Jerusalem. So what city are they going to die in? They're going to die in, come on, somebody say it. Jerusalem, once again, their bodies will lie in the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Has God figuratively called his people Sodom? Yes, he has. Has he called them Egypt? Yes, he has. And so he's, he's saying, this is what Jerusalem is like to me in times of judgment. So he is going to allow them to die there. And now watch verse 9. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their body and refuse them burial. The inhabitants, now watch this, of the earth. Somebody say the earth. Thank you. We'll gloat over them and we'll celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets tormented those who live on the earth. Anybody here ever uh, been accused of tormenting your neighbors or something for preaching? Amen. Come on. That's sometimes what we're accused of. Brother, can you set up these fans for me, please? It's a little hot. Maybe kick down the AC. Man, thank you so much. Now, how could they do this in the time of the 1800s? How could the whole earth and some from every tribe, people group, and language see them? You couldn't have done it in the 1800s. How would this prophecy have come to pass in the 1400s? Thank you, brother. If you could sit up this one too. Thank you. How could that happen? Could that happen in the 1400s? Oh, everybody from the earth is going to see two dead people in Jerusalem. No, what would you have to say? You would have to say, oh, you know what? That's just speaking hyperbolic. That's just like expansion language. That's not really everybody from across the earth. That's not really everybody everywhere. No, but if I'm being true, thank you, sir. If I'm being true to the interpretive principle that I've been using, unless I have a reason to take something figurative, like literally it's saying, it's figurative, or it's like such and such, unless I have a reason, I should just take it as what it is, right? So here's where I believe those who in times past had to endure mocking and scorning, we can actually point back and show the great uh, power and knowledge of our God. Because imagine you're living during the time of the 1800s, and people are always looking for reasons to disbelieve in God. They come to you and go, well, how is this going to happen? Now, come on, how is this going to happen? And then the same thing with the mark, as we'll get to later. How is this mark going to prevent you from selling? You know, they're thinking a tattoo, a little mark on your skin. See, we go back to this now, and we go, hey, I understand where that can happen or where and how. That can happen in a modern generation with satellite TV and live Internet. I think that's so beautiful, and it's not even brought up as necessarily a big thing. It's just something you're supposed to take for granted. At that time, look at it. The inhabitants of the earth glowed over them so they can see them. Now, verse 11 But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood upon their feet. Wouldn't that be awesome to see on live TV? And then terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from saying to to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Now, do you remember where I told you in Revelation, I believe that the rapture happened and why I'm pre-trib? Let's go there. Go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. I know it's hot, but are you guys paying attention? I'm getting that AC coming for some of you guys, but come on, keep helping me preach here. Do you remember why in Revelation chapter 4 I said, I believe this is where the rapture is? 
Why did I say that? Because that language was come up where? Come up here. And now we see that after the two witnesses die and God brings them to heaven, what does he say to them? What does he say? Come up here. If I had half the people here, I would be happy. Come on. Somebody say, come up here. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. He then says to John, come up here. Come up here. Everybody say it together. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. What do I believe that's God doing? Speaking to the church. Come up here. When we look to the scriptures, we see that the phrase, come up here, means somebody's going to heaven. Now, you might say, well, that just means John was going to heaven. But why is it after we hear John told, come up here, and I'll show you what must take place? We don't hear about the church anymore. We don't hear about them. Next time we see them, where are they at? Around the throne from every nation, tribe, and language. Isn't that the next time we see them? And then as we go through all of these signs and judgment, who are the only ones we hear about? The 144,000 and those who are being martyred during that time. You can't martyr 144,000. You can martyr the other group. But remember, martyrs have their place where around the throne? Under the throne. But when we see that great multitude in heaven, they are around the throne. They must be, in my opinion, the rapture church, while the underneath throne, the persecuted church, is being filled up throughout the seven years, and the 144,000, the Jewish church, is being preserved. Well, come on, somebody. You can say amen. Doing my best up here. It's not easy preaching through these books, uh, these chapters and verses. Amen. I would like to go back to I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. I was also talking to Jared about that, and he was like, man, my first sermon series as a pastor, you have me in the book of Revelation. And I'm like, you didn't have to follow me there. But he's like, no, the Lord told me to follow you doing it. So imagine that your first sermon series as a pastor is let's go through the book of Revelation. He said, I'm studying more than I've ever studied. He's arguing with himself. He's arguing with me. He's trying to figure it out. Pray for Pastor Jared. Amen. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. Come up here. And then they went to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And I believe that's the same picture that we saw at the beginning of the tribulation as the church is taken up. They watch us. And then the Antichrist comes and tries to take over the world. You know, he does eventually, but he has to have that army and persecution arises and all of that. So I believe that's that language that we should hold on to. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Well, hold on. Remember now, if you're going to use, uh, let me just read the end of it because I got I got tied all together. So they give glory to God in heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. Everybody go, whoa. Yeah, that was all just the sixth trumpet, the second woe. That whole entire thing we just read right there. That's Yeah, that's a big woe. Whoa. Help us, Lord. Okay, now going back to this, this is why I cannot believe in any of these cyclical views because what does it say happens after the sixth trumpet, the second woe, is that people are still willing to praise God after they just saw people martyred and then go to heaven. Does that sound like that can happen here around the sixth bowl, around the seventh bowl, that people are still willing to praise that God? Absolutely not. During this time, we're right about mid-tribulation. It looks as if the Antichrist 
is going to get his way. There's a little hiccup with the Israelites, and they break the covenant, but in their mind, we're going to squash the rebellion, send them scattered, and I believe that's what Matthew 24 is talking about, not the destruction of the temple, but the scattering as the the city of Jerusalem is surrounded. So the 144 scatter except the two witnesses, and then now what happens? They see the witnesses die, and they're thinking, okay, we got over this Jewish problem. We finally solved it. Yay, Hitler, we have eradicated the Jews. They scattered off. We can now go about our business. But then all of a sudden they see those those witnesses rise up and ascend to heaven and they're like, whoa, maybe we're wrong here. But then as the story goes, the great deception goes in those final three and a half years, as the temple is trampled and they don't see God back, then they start to get even further deceived because the Antichrist then makes an image. He somehow gets assassinated or tries, you know, says a sword uh, uh, injures him, kills him, but then he's raised from the dead himself. So that deception then goes towards his camp and no longer are they going to praise God ever again. That's the last time you're ever going to see... In the tribulation hour, people willing to praise God. All right, somebody say Daniel 70 weeks. Okay, now let me explain why we have the time frame that we do. So if you look up here to the, to the chart, most people's position, no matter what, if you're pre-trib, post-trib, or um, mid-trib, is that we all believe that this is a seven-year period from the time of the first a horseman of the apocalypse, which we believe right before that's the rapture. But let's just say you don't even believe in pre-rapture. So let's just say from the horse, uh, the horseman of the apocalypse to the battle of Armageddon. Everybody agrees that that's seven years. So now how do we get the seven-year time period? Why do we say that's seven years? Why, do, why did um, John all of a sudden talk about, you know, 42 months, 1,260 days? Why is that time frame being used? Now we go to the most quoted book of the book of Revelation. We now go to Daniel 70 weeks, and I have now, by God's grace, about three minutes to explain this to you. How many know why that's why we let you out the side doors now? Because we run in so late, they're piling up there. I'm causing traffic jams. Okay, Lord, help me now. Three minutos. There it is. Okay, so when you go to Daniel chapters 7 and 9, that Daniel chapter 7 and 9, you're going to learn that Daniel was given the prophecy about the worldwide kingdoms about the prophecy of rebuilding the temple, because remember, in Daniel's generation, it had been destroyed, and about the coming Messiah. You're going to see those three things be prophesied to Daniel. Daniel's going to learn about the worldwide empires. The last empire that we're waiting for is the empire made of clay of the 12, uh, excuse me, of the 10 toes unifying together, and we believe that's the revised Roman Empire. The last empire was the Roman Empire. And, and I could go through the whole statue and the image that he gets, but I'm trying to be brief right here, okay? So he gets, he gets a vision about the worldwide empires and the last one that's going to come. He gets a vision about the temple being rebuilt and the Messiah coming. This is where we can rock any Jewish person to show them Jesus has to be the Messiah, and then we can rock any atheist that thinks the Bible is just throwing out prophecies and then making Jesus fit around them. So sometime an athe- sometimes an atheist or a non-believer will say, "You guys throw the bullseye. Uh, excuse me. You throw the dart first. It hits the wall. Then you come with your paint and you paint the red circle and go look what our Jesus did." So in other words, they say our Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and back here uh, a Messiah will be born. In in Bethlehem. They think we're doing it in that order. 
Does everybody get how they accuse us of doing it? But it's not done like that, is it? Our scriptures come long before Jesus, and Jesus fulfills them. Well, one that you cannot make up, you cannot get around, is when the Messiah must come. Daniel gives the year he must come. And we know for a fact that Daniel and the book of Daniel predates Jesus. So there is no Christian that can go back into the book of Daniel, get Jesus' birth date, and then say, Daniel said this would happen 400 and some years from his time to this time. See, I just did that. It came from Daniel. Look, it's a prophecy. You cannot do that. We have the evidence of Daniel existing long before Jesus. And so what does Daniel get? that there will be 70 sevens, 70 sevens. You times 70 times seven, what number do you get? 490. 490 what? We believe, and Daniel is told, they are years. So they are going to be broken up into the rebuilding of the temple. The first seven is going to be seven times seven equaling 49 years. He tells Daniel, in 49 years, the temple will be rebuilt. And the temple was rebuilt in 49 years. You can go back into history. He is then told that there is going to be 62 weeks, or they call the seven a week as well, because that's how we also understand a seven is a week, that 72 sevens, excuse me, 62 sevens is when the Messiah is going to be born, praise God, which is 434 years after the 49 years of the rebuilding of the temple, which in total is the 69 weeks or 483 years. And how many believe Jesus was born right around this time and that he started his ministry around this time and that he was cut off from the land, crucified at that time and raised from the dead? How many believe Jesus is Daniel's Messiah? He came the 483 years prophesied from Daniel. That is clear. Now, here is the missing link here. How many 70s did Daniel get? How many? 70. How many have we just concurred and clapped for? 69. How many are we missing? One. One seven. Seven years. And so the question is, where do you put the seven years? What we call the 70th week of Daniel. Some have tried to say that the, 70, uh, the, the 70th week, the seven years, starts after Christ's resurrection. It's the age of the church, and it's now symbolic. And all the book of Revelation was fulfilled at the, the destruction of 70 AD, and it's all symbolic. And these are called post-millennial. Some are amillennial, and they have a little bit different of views, but the idea is they are a preterist, meaning that all of the things we think happened in the 70th week actually happened during this time of the, the destruction of Jerusalem, the age of the church, etc. We are futurists. We are not preterists. We do not look back and say the 70th week has been fulfilled. We believe that the 70th week and the book of Revelation coincide together for a future event like we've been talking about and, and going through with the Antichrist, the, the nations, and all of those things. We believe that's in the future. And if you ask a preterist, somebody who believes it happened in the back, what were the seals back then? What were the bowls? What were the trumpets? You think I've been stretching the context. Watch them stretch the context. If you ask them, well, who are the two witnesses? Because we never heard about two witnesses in 70 AD getting resurrected, ascending to heaven. Stretch 
catch the context, okay? And I love some of these Bible preachers, and some of them come from the past and were some of my favorites, but I don't believe it's accurate to the Scripture as, as it can be. It's not. It is so, when you listen to them, they say the two witnesses are the Old and New Testament. And when you talk to them about the seals and the judgment, they say that's all hyperbolic language. It was just when God destroyed the temple and some, some earthquakes happened. You know, it, did, it didn't really rock the whole world. There wasn't all of these angels coming down, blowing trumpets. There wasn't a locust army. That's just the sign of their coming curses. I mean, it's, it's so far out there that once you've made the Bible that, why are we even reading it anymore? Honestly, it's not that I want to discredit them as Christians, but once you take the, the book of Revelation, that's symbolic. What was the point of me getting it? If I was supposed to receive the book of Revelation and interpret it in such what I would say a messy way, what message is that possibly sending? Because even then, for the people who were alive, how in the world would you even consider the locust army a, a, just some type of a curse that came on you? You had the hiccups or something, you know? I mean, it literally says there's a demon leading this army. A third of the earth dies. I mean, what is a third of the earth if it's not a third of the earth? Are you guys tracking? What is a fourth of the earth? I mean, it's all symbolic. So for me, the only logical, reasonable, exegetical, hermeneutically correct way to understand this is the seven weeks are future, uh, the seven years are future. How many are kind of there with me? You're in our church today. You can be with me. It's not going to hurt you. I won't bite. But how many are somewhat convinced, right? You're like, I'm here. I'm listening. Well, that's why now when we go back and we learn about the witnesses, why are they talking about 42 months? Why are they talking about 1,260 days? Well, that goes back to this. In this time period, it's cutting the seven in half. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And then by God's grace, we'll try to end it here. I don't want to spoil. I got a little bit more to read, but I want to spoil it for the second service folks who come early. But you've already read the end of the book, though, right? You already know it. Amen. I won't, I won't spoil it too much. But go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So this is the reason why we divide up those last seven years. We get the ideas from Daniel, and then I'll point it back here again. He will confirm, we believe this is the Antichrist. So remember, the Antichrist to us is not a new concept in the New Testament. This goes back to Daniel's day. Daniel says this. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. We believe that's the seven weeks. And by the way, the, the preterists have no covenant between an emperor of Rome and Israel for the Temple Mount or any of that. So, I mean, once again, it stretches so many things. We should just not even talk about the preterists. How many just want to talk about the futurists? Amen? We, we know there's, there's no room for them there. They can't fit in with us. In the middle. In the what? In the what? In the middle, thank you, Daniel, of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured on him. Does everybody get why the book of Revelation is splitting up the middle? Because that was prophesied in Daniel. And so now when you ask me, why do I put the witnesses at the middle, even different than John Hagee here, going up here, John Hagee puts them at the beginning of the tribulation. Why would... Why would the witnesses be preaching during that time when the temple mounts at peace? The treaty's been made. Now, some might say, well, they're, 
they're, uh, they're telling them this is the Antichrist you've actually made a treaty with. But it doesn't sound like he has the Jews against him. He's, they actually have the Jews and the 144,000 on their side. Why is, that the way it has, uh, why is that significant? Because that means the temple has already been defiled. So I think the three and a half witnesses come sometime uh, right around the mid-tribulation, and then they go right out here to the end, and then that's where they're preaching. Now, when it comes to the praising God, some people say, well, we never hear about them praising God again, Joe, and you say as their hearts get harder, they may not praise God, so you say that they praise God here. I believe, as we'll hear the angels with the everlasting gospel come forth, that that's probably the last time in the timeline we'll ever hear them praise God, and from that point on, they scorn him, and that's why they receive the judgment and all of those things. So sometimes we have to kind of fit in our timeline, but I don't think they're preaching right here at the beginning and then ending here, um, which I might have said at the beginning of the service, so I have to correct myself, but I, I, don't, I believe the last three and a half years is the last three and a half years of the witness. Somebody stretch forth your hands and say, help him, Jesus. Thank you. Yeah, sometimes I confuse myself. Where, I got to go back and listen. Where did I put those witnesses in the middle of this sermon? Because I said they praise God. I think I put them more towards the beginning. But I, I, I changed my mind quite a bit. But I'm going to stick with them coming towards the end. That's where I'm going to go with that. I can't look at anybody right now. I'm too embarrassed about the two witnesses. <sighs> I got to prepare for second service, Poppy. I got to prepare. My father-in-law's in the back. I got to get this tightened up here, Joe. Where are the two witnesses? Where are they coming? Beginning or end? Lord, give me the answer before I come to second service. I'm changing my mind in front of the people. Sometimes I wonder which direction I'm going and coming in this. Let's go right here to the end. Somebody say, help us, Jesus. Band and altar workers, would you come? Two witnesses. Oh, that's a tough one. Now I got to go back and think through that. I'm arguing with myself again. That's what I was saying in one of the services. I didn't know which, uh, which position I was going to take about the seals and the trumpets. I was almost convinced in the back that they uh, were happening at the same time. And I said, uh, no, I can't see it that way. And that's why I came out and argued for the other position. But how many are going to be gracious with me? Will you be gracious with me as I study this with you? Thank you. I'm doing my best. Here's the preaching portion of today's message with our remaining moments here. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, finally comes out. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Now this is why I was almost convinced that the trumpets end with everybody else, because now there's the shouting unto heaven. But notice that the wrath is still to come. Watch. So this can't be the end of the story. I think it's the interlude. And then the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and the one who was, and you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time for judging the dead and rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your peoples who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. This time has come. Now, why do I believe that this is not the end right here? Because it says that the time has come to destroy the earth, but that the earth is not yet destroyed. The six, uh, excuse me, the seven bowls, I believe, then destroy the earth. That's why. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. If I was to preach this just as a standalone message, what I would preach this as in our final moments here together is that the kingdom of our God 
Uh, the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our God. Jesus already said in Matthew chapter 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. But we have not yet seen the kingdoms of this world subject themselves to him. We're going to watch that happen one day. And this is what gives me hope when I look at what's going on in the world because the kingdoms of the world look like they're going to go on forever. And it looks like they're going to keep rebelling against our God and that there's going to be no end to it. But the kingdom of God is going to come upon this earth. And if you notice, the kingdom of God is not going to come with voting. It's not going to come with a democratic appeal. It's going to come through the wrath of God. And so here's what I want to say to us in closing. Like I said, I wish I had more time to preach, Lord. Help me for second service. I really want us to see that all that we're concerned about here, God's going to take care of. Because didn't he say, seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness, and then all of these things will be added unto us. Do I understand everything about the timeline? No, I don't. I've been the first one to admit that as I've been trying to interpret the book of Revelation, I get stuck in my own interpretive principles. And I know the others do too because I catch them in their, uh, their traps as well. But is that the most important thing for us to understand the timeline of the two witnesses or the, the idea of what are the locust army, demonic or human? Is that the most important thing here? No, what is the most important thing is the kingdom of God is coming to this earth. And that's supposed to be what we're searching for and seeking right now. Amen? And we're supposed to be preparing the world for this. We're supposed to be telling them the kingdoms that you now see, the kingdom of China, that belongs to our God. And he's going to rule over it. So China, repent. And so what does that make us to this generation, my brother and sister? That makes us ambassadors. When we're doing world missions, my brother, Lord, sometimes, you know, because I know you've been to the Philippines and I've been other places, sometimes we think we're going over there almost like begging them, you know, please, pretty please, follow Jesus. But we're actually going there as ambassadors. Bow your knee to the king or else because he's coming to your land. He's coming whether you like it or not. We're, we are the ambassadors telling you he's coming. He's coming, and he's not. the next time he comes, he's not asking, do you want him to be a king? The next time he comes, he's not asking him, do you want him to be your Lord? He's coming because he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. So those who accept him now, those who receive him now get to share in that kingdom. All the kingdoms are going to belong to God at the end anyways. The question is, are you going to belong in that kingdom? Because as we go to the end of the book of Revelation, outside, the Bible says, are the dogs. Outside are those who don't serve Christ. They're outside of the kingdom. So yes, they'll know that the kingdom has come. The kingdom will come to their earth, uh, to their country. The kingdom will come to their people, but they won't have any part of it. And so today, as we get ready to end this service, I ask you, I plead with you, as Christ's ambassador, be reconciled with God. Make your life right with the king before he comes. Amen. Let's stand up today and give it up for King Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we ask you, oh God, in the name of Jesus, to save anyone here that doesn't already know you. If you don't know Jesus, would you ask him into your heart to be your king? Repent of your sins as we're praying for you right now. Saints, pray for those who don't know Jesus as their king. Maybe it's a family member that's not with you here today or, or somebody that you know at, at the job or at your, your gym. Pray for them right now. Father, we pray for especially those here and for those that we know who don't know you yet, that aren't serving you yet, to be born again. In the name of Jesus, 
If you don't know how to be born again, simply repent of your sins and say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Make Jesus the king of your life today. Make Jesus the king today so you can share in his kingdom. And for the rest of us who would say, you know, I've done that before. Check your heart. Is Jesus really your king? Are you living for him? Are you living like him? Are you ready to be a part of that kingdom? Or are you going to be ashamed when he comes? Right now, Christians, don't backslide. Guard your hearts, for the king is coming to establish his kingdom. In the name of Jesus, a few moments right now. Father, I pray for everyone here who is not already in your kingdom to be born again. Those who are, Lord, may they know and love you more, serve you more, have all sin removed by your grace, live holy, and be kingdom ambassadors. And lastly, if you're here today and you want to be a kingdom ambassador, would you just raise up your hands as we get ready to dismiss second